education, you know, a master's and a doctorate. But I, in seven years, have learned more through a practical theologian of watching this man than I did in all of my education. You need to know that. And I don't say that to flatter him because he lives the word. He does. And so I've, I've learned more in that regard. Let me also say that today is my wife's birthday. And um, 10 years ago, this day, she was uh, found out that she had breast cancer right on her birthday. Doesn't that really smack you in the face? And uh, it kind of went from bad to worse. And so we were on a whole year journey. And I became her caretaker for one whole year. And uh, as chemo emaciated her, made her skinny and little and, and uh, lost all of her hair. And I would dress her and, and take care of her. And after one year of that, um, I can now tell you for nine years, she is cancer-free. Praise God. And um, it's not even in remission. In fact, after one year, OSU... Heard of the OSU, Buckeyes? Never mind. Anyway, um, they said that she was, uh, the oncologist said, we just don't see it. We can't declare your cancer free, but we just can't see it. And so today she is going out and she is going to have a party. She is. She is. My wife uh, got ordained in April. Uh, God gave her a promise during her chemo, and that was uh, some... uh, I believe it's 118 verse 17. I will not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. And so we started praising. You know what I learned during that that valley? Is that he is good and and his love endures forever. See, I praised him. I did. I, I I learned in Psalm 23, David said he feeds me. In the presence of the enemy, I discovered that that when you're in the midst of a, an, an adversity and you praise God, it's like somehow God puts that on the devil's intercom so that the enemy has to watch you praising Him, even in the midst of a time when you should be cursing God. But but I found that there was rhema, there was food, there was revelation in the midst of adversity yes. because we chose to praise Him yes. and not give in to what we didn't understand. So there's things we don't understand, but I can't allow what I don't understand to steal from the joy of what I do understand. And that is God is good. And so we praised him. See, we praised him. And uh, anyway, we had a great time. My wife um, came back with vengeance. She is the divine vindicator. And she has fire in her bones, too. She really does. And so we're in the transition. Our church is 20 years old, and we're in the transition of moving her into the senior position. So that I can devote more time to writing and to fire school ministries and traveling. So anyway, um, all that to say, um, praise God. Amen? Amen. So I want to take you back uh, to, to 10 years ago uh, because in some ways I'm only 10 years old. Now, I was born again in 1981. I was sanctified in 1982 and I started preaching in 1983. And so I've always you know, chased after Jesus, but, but something happened 10 years ago. Even though our church is 20 years alive, uh, uh, 20 years old, it's 10 years alive. And so I crawled out of my church um, 10 years ago for a seven-week sabbatical. And my intent was to just get away and come back and then resign the church and go on about my business because I wanted out of ministry. We had started the church on a different paradigm than what this church has started on. We were Willow Creek wannabes, and, and so um, we tried to appease people to create a service to, to, to make it um, uh, something that people would like. And 
And so that was our first 10 years. And so that kind of just wore me down to nothing because I realized you can have people and you can have programs. You don't have the presence. You're in trouble. So I crawled away. And um, on this seven-week sabbatical, I had an encounter. And uh, I realized that um, there was more to what God wanted to do in and through me and, and through the rest of my life. Um, I had three days of the overwhelming manifest presence of God's glory that just fell on me for three days. I just was overwhelming, just three days of this stuff. And can I tell you, there's a massive difference between his omni and manifest presence. You guys know the difference, don't you? I can go out in the sun with a magnifying glass, and that sun can be intensified through one little beam and heat things up. The manifest presence of God is when the weighty presence of God magnifies in your life, and you feel the intense awareness of his presence. And I did for three overwhelming days. It just burned in me over. I mean, just unbelievable. So I came back to my church, and I just said, here's the deal. I says, we're not creating services for people. We're going to create services for his presence. <laughs> and he didn't know what that meant. I just said, I just know whatever I had, I just want it. I want more. And I said, um, so who wants the manifest presence of God's glory? And everyone stood, you know, and came forward. We all cried out. And, and so now here's the part that's not exaggeration, because people come up to me, and they say, now, are, are you sure? And there's no exaggeration to what I'm sharing. So... I, I, I said, be careful when you ask for the manifest presence of God's glory, because when it comes, it may be a little different than what you anticipated. Yes. You know, it's like the church that had revival, and after revival, they interviewed the church leaders, and they said, we were crying out, and it was like we were saying, here, kitty, 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 and the lion or the tribe of Judah came. <laughs> It's massively different. So we had no idea what we were asking for 10 years ago. I just wanted God, man. I just wanted his presence. I just wanted what I had on this sabbatical. I just wanted his manifest presence, the weighty presence of his glory to settle into our midst, man. And the very next Sunday, that's exactly what happened. And it just, it, now listen, I mean it. It wrecked our little Nazarene church. It wrecked it. And I don't mean just wrecked it. It wrecked it. And it wasn't just one Sunday. It was Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And it got to be the place that first year it was so intense that I would come back in to get my bag, you know, like at... Um, shoulder bag like around 3 or 4 in the afternoon. And I would walk into the sanctuary and I was, I, there was a sense of fear Awe, reverence. You know what I'm saying? Not like, a, not like an oppressive fear, but a reverent fear. The Bible speaks there are several different words in the New Testament for fear. But there's one word that refers to like an ominous fear, a reverence. It's kind of like Isaiah 6. Whoa, my God, he's in this place. And I realized when I walked in to get my shoulder back, his presence. I know he doesn't hover in buildings, but yet he hovered in the building. It was like he was there. And I could feel that. And it was weighty. It was ominous. It was, it was awesome. There would be services where I would sit and I would just hold the microphone like this and I would shake because God had moved in. Fact in Isaiah chapter 6, it says the train of his robe filled the temple. Scholars believe that's actually translated filling the temple. So it just didn't fill it. It kept filling and kept filling and kept filling and kept filling and kept filling the temple. No wonder he was like, whoa. And so there was services where he just kept filling and kept filling. And like, my, if the heavens cannot contain him, you think our building can? And he just kept moving in. And it was like, 
And then there would be services where there would be 30, 40 people just on the floor. We just, it was like, it was like Second Chronicles 5.14. The priests couldn't stand up under the weight of the glory. We, just, we couldn't stand up. And then there would be services where people would dance. We don't dance. They would dance. <laughs> and people would say to me, I don't know about this dancing and, 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 and flags. People were waving flags. I said, well, my mom waved a hanky. That's a flag without a stick. I mean, come on. It's just crazy. Um, and then people started getting healed. People started, I mean, supernatural things. I saw more miracles in one year than I had seen in my entire life. And miracles started happening just during worship that totally got wrecked by the power of God that suddenly became prophetic. And we started singing Selah, a new song. It was incredible. And, and, and then people would, like, interrupt the service because they would get healed. And one dude came up on the, like, and ran up to the, and he threw his cane down on the stage. And, and he just was suddenly healed. He just says, I'm healed, I'm healed, I'm healed. And we now use this cane, like if the, the batteries don't work on the remote control for the video projector. We use this cane to turn it on and off. It's just like, what else are you going to use a cane for, right? Use wheelchairs to bring in product. You know what I'm saying? Just If it, people aren't in them, just use them. It just was crazy. People got touched. I remember this one lady, she's just like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. I says, well, what's going on? She goes, I just got healed. And, and that's okay if you got healed. I suppose you can say, oh, my God. I mean, just got touched. And um, a guy came up to me, and he says, um, I got a pain. I'm thinking, sit down and take an Advil, right? He says, I got a pain. It goes from here down to my right shoulder, it's real intense. And I'm thinking, all right. And then he goes on to say this. He says, I don't think this is for me. I think I'm feeling this for someone who needs to get touched in the church. I'd never heard of that. I'd never heard of that. Never had a school class and seminary on dealing with pain that belongs to other people. Never had a class on that. Didn't know anything about that. But I trusted this guy. And I know God was moving in our church and fruit was happening. And so I said, well, okay. I gave him the mic. He described it. And someone in the back said, that's me. I was working on the dock this week. I turned and I pulled a nerve. She came up. We lathered her down with oil. She gets healed. His pain goes away. That just started happening. In fact, listen, that first year, all nine supernatural manifestations of 1 Corinthians 12 just started bursting. Yeah, you gay old, yeah, I was scared. <laughs> I, was, I didn't know Danny. I didn't, I didn't know what to do. And so I was like, God, you, you got to help me here. And um, that first year was just, because I didn't know who to turn to. I, I, didn't, I didn't know Bill Johnson. I didn't, I, didn't know, I didn't know anybody. I had one dude who was my friend, had been my friend for over 30 years, Kevin Seymour, and God hadn't touched him yet, so I'd sit down and have lunch with him, and I'd tell him what was happening, and he'd say, now, dude, you need to be careful. Don't get too carried away. As if to say, don't get too carried away with the Holy Spirit. Only go so far with the Holy Spirit. And then put the brakes on. I mean, right? But yet, here's the deal, gang. I wasn't about to give up the heritage in which I was raised in, believing, absolutely fundamentally believing that it is imperative that every man and every woman has their heart purified by the work of the Holy Spirit, that the internal propensity towards sin has to be severed and filled with the fullness of God. We have to have new hearts. We have to have new hearts, man. And so I realized 
that first year, there's this interesting balance. And, and I don't even say balance. I like the word fusion. I saw it 10 years ago. There was this fusion between this aspect of purity and power. And that it wasn't either or. And we've killed churches by trying to make them fit into the tyranny of the or. And I believe there's a blessing of the and. It's not one or the other. I believe it is and both. And for the last 100 years, we've had churches that are purity-oriented. They are word-oriented. And God bless them. They are. They're ardent students of this word. They're like the Bereans. They study the word. They understand the word. But far be it for them to allow anything in terms of the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And so they are like what Paul prophesied in 2 Timothy 3, 5, that there'll be this form, the structure, this morphe of godliness, but literally disavow, break, union with something they were once in a line with and disavow from the power, the supernatural dunamis work of the Holy Spirit. So their form, no power. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is nothing more than a structure that will eventually dry up and have no life in it. Simultaneously, there is this other group that just functions with enormous power, man. I mean, they run, they dance, they flip, they do somersaults, man. They flow in everything that you can flow in. But truth of the matter is, is when you get beneath the surface and begin to look at the dynamics of the relationships and the personal uh, ethics of the people within the constituency of those bodies, they lack something very fundamental. And that is walking in righteousness, purity, and holiness. That is fundamental. And ladies and gentlemen, you can prophesy all you want, but if you don't walk in righteousness, it means nothing. It means nothing. And so 10 years ago, I'm like, okay, wait a minute. It can't be one or the other. That just can't be. And I had something in my belly that said, there's got to be a fusion. There has to be a fusion. There has to be a marriage of word and spirit. There has to be this integration between purity and power. There has to be. There has to be. And, and, and I decided I'm just going to stick this thing out, man. I'm not going to jump ship. And I don't say anything negative against those who do. Believe me, I was tempted to start my own deal. But somehow, someway, I said, God, I've got to just stick this thing out. And I've got to see that there is going to be a church of purity and power. There is. There is. A year into that, the whole deal with Cindy and all of that, but in the midst of that, I met a man named Randy Clark. You probably don't know him. And Randy prophesied nine years ago. Nine years ago, he prophesied over Cindy and me. He said, you two will be used by God to redig the wells in the holiness movement. I had no idea what that meant. I had no idea. I nurtured that word for nine months. Nine months. And then I brought it forth to my church. And I can tell you, I am spending the rest of my life to redig the wells in the holiness movement. To see the fusion of purity and power. Because I don't think it's one or the other. It is and both. It really is. And you show me Jesus, and I say there's someone who functioned both in word and spirit. He was the culmination of both. He was. That's right. He really was. Praise God. So one of the areas that I just, you know, studied. Of course, you know... 
consume the word. I, I absolutely agree with what Craig has said in terms of just consuming the word. And, and, so, and then after I met Dan seven years ago, I made a promise to God, a vow, that, that I would be a student of the word even more. And, and so, um, so I, I want us to look at what I call the transformational or the supernatural section of 1 Corinthians. And if you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And um, I take no credit for what I'm going to share here at this moment because um, my doctorate was in the fusion of word and spirit. And I had some really cool people in my uh, group. But um, I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And this actually was pointed out to me by Dr. John Ruthven, who was our uh, doctoral mentor. Um, one of the most brilliant men that I know. And Ruthven said that within the church in Corinth, there's a central section. And he said, um, and he actually walked through. We spent several hours. And he went through pretty much verse by verse and really showed how that contextually, if you're going to do any justice to this supernatural lifestyle, if you're going to steward this, and, and let me say it this way, this is what I've been learning in the last 10 years. There must be a way to steward a supernatural culture without falling off the rails on either direction. And that's what I've been attempting to do. I mean, listen, I'm 10 years old, so I'm a newbie at all of this, man. So, but how do you steward this kind of a culture without falling off the rail and, and really um, function in the fusion of both of them? Well, his teaching helped bring clarity to that question that was swirling around in my head and heart. And so he talked about the central section within this church and he pointed out that what he, what, what he was teaching here, what Paul was sharing, was not necessarily um, uh, directional as much as correctional. In the sense that you can't read 1 Corinthians, you can't read the, the passages that we're looking at in the next couple of days that I feel God wants me to share as this is how you do it as much as there is a problem because they weren't doing it the right way. And so when you understand that, then you have to take these passages in, in, um, in their context. So anyway, this is what Ruthven pointed out. He said, the starting point to this is 11.17. And look at 11 and 17, 1 Corinthians 11.17. But in giving this instruction, now he pointed out that the instruction was not just merely the communal meal that they were talking about, but chapters 12 13 and 14, that that was the dissertation, the discourse, actually, that Paul wanted to discuss with these people. And so this started this central section of a supernatural culture. But look how it starts. Very interesting. In giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. And you think about that. Imagine Jordan standing here, or any pastor for that matter, and saying, look, here's the deal. I'm not happy because every time we have a corporate assembly, it's not good. We're worse for having come together than if we never came together to begin with. And I can tell you all across America, there is churches that when they gather, they're worse for having been together than if they just never got together to begin with. They come together, there's division, there's strife, there's tension, and it's not the kind of place that would be a community of faith that Jesus gave his blood for. It's for the worse. Literally ugly. It's interesting. That word just is like, it, there's a root of that that means it's, it's almost demonic. Okay, 
And so Rufin says, so that's the starting point. See, that's the starting point. The ending point to this is 1440. And look how 1440 ends. But all things must be done properly, and then check this out, in an orderly manner. Now look at that word orderly. It's this word taxes. And it has the idea of something being done sequentially. And in the context, it's being sequentially ordered by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit brings this, and then he 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 brings this. And when everything is sequentially brought together as the Spirit directs it, there's this beautiful picture that is painted. And Ruthven says, the picture looks pretty much like Jesus. And so when you come into the body of Christ that, that is functioning in the presence of the Holy Spirit, that is being led by the Holy Spirit, when you come into an atmosphere where the presence of God is truly free to move and operate, it literally is a beautiful atmosphere. It's gorgeous. It's wonderful. It's like, whoa, wow. I might even add, you can actually breathe in that atmosphere because the presence of God is there. And he is the air we breathe. Versus one that is suffocating and deadening and crippling, right? So you have the starting point, see? 11, 17, you have the starting point into the supernatural culture that is, that is twisted and, 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 and you know, uh, divisive and hurtful and broken and marginalized. And, and then you end this discourse with something that is very beautiful, something that is very pretty. Something that is wholesome, attractive, presence-oriented, see? And then what he did, we don't have time. He walked through almost, almost verse by verse by verse by verse through, this chap, through these chapters. And, so, and you know what they are. you got chapter 12, the chapter of manifestations, chapter 13, the personification of love, and chapter 14, um, the uh, underscoring the, the prophetic manifestation. So... Um, I want us to look at 14.1, and I'm going to summarize these three chapters. In this session, I'm going to just summarize one chapter. I'm going to underscore one aspect of a supernatural culture that I think absolutely is fundamental. And, and, and echoing the words of Paul, don't even think about having a supernatural culture if this is not foundational in your midst. Just don't. Hang your sneakers up and go home. Because if this is not within, if this is not in our midst, if this characteristic is not being personified, we're in trouble. There's no supernatural. Okay? So look at 14.1. And I like 14.1 because it's a summary verse. Okay? Pursue love. Well, that would be chapter 13. Yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts. That's chapter 12. And then but especially that you may prophesy is really the essence of chapter 14. Okay? So let's start with this idea of love. And that, that's, that's this undergirding foundational aspect of a supernatural culture. This, more than anything else, is what I have learned in the last decade. And some of the people that I'm with, I've been with for now 16, 17, even 18 years. And I will tell you, 
that the glue that solidifies a church is the ability to function in agape love. There is no sustainability in a church if we are not becoming love. There's none. There's surface relationships. There's, there's um, mask wearing. There's inauthenticity. There's erosion of confidence. There's all kinds of things that go awry if we're not becoming love. Now, it's very interesting because the word pursue is looking at this even this morning. Okay, it's an imperative, which means it's not up for grabs. It's a command. It's a present tense verb. So it just, you don't just, hey, I've pursued it. We know it's life. It's, it's ongoing. And the word dakia is this interesting verb that means to chase after, to pursue, to aggressively go after. And one expositor likens it to the idea of actually hunting for something. Now, I don't know about you guys, but my brother-in-law, he pastors in Elkins, West Virginia, and he deer hunts. Now, this is a big thing in West Virginia to go deer hunting. And I didn't realize this, but they start the deer hunt 18 months before the hunt. And they start by putting a corn feeder out. And all they do is this thing is a, you know, works by um, some type of a... They have a solar panel on it, and it spits out corn at the right time. And then he gets these very expensive cameras that are immune to any type of weather, and he puts them up into the tree. And what he does is he discovers the pattern of buck coming through that area 18 months before a hunt. Now, he's already spent a large sum of money on this feeder and these cameras that they fastened into the tree. And then a week before the hunt, after he studied all of this, and he has all of the, 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 the pictures and all of this stuff, and he's got the pattern of the buck, where they come in, the wind patterns in this, and where they feed, where they migrate to, all of this kind of a thing. A week before the hunt, he does not take any kind of a shower because any kind of fragrance of soap, any type of toothpaste, anything that you would use that have any fragrance would get on you, and that's going to screw up the hunt. So there's no shower, no bath, no toothpaste, no deodorant, no any the day of the hunt he gets up early and then he puts deer urine all over him the clothes that have been out in the garage for weeks because you don't want anything in the house fragrance or anything that my sister-in-law would maybe sweep her house with and a fragrance inside the vacuum cleaner that would put this fragrance on the clothes that would screw up the hunt so the clothes have been outside deer urine now are all over him on the day of a hunt he gets up at four in the morning climbs up this tree stand that he spent a lot of money on and he gets in this little blind and he sits behind that thing at about 4 30 in the morning and doesn't make Make a sound for several hours for one single reason so that he can get a buck. <laughs> now let me ask you, what regiments will you go through to become love? See, how will you adjust your life? How will you bend your life? How, how will you alter everything about your life to become love? How will you pursue it? Will it mean getting up in the morning? Will it mean going to bed later at night to spend time with Jesus? Will it mean repenting? What, what does it mean? Here's the bottom line. Are you becoming love? Because it's not something you have become. It is something you are becoming. And it never ends. 
That, ladies and gentlemen, is the foundation of a supernatural culture. And I might add the antithesis of everything we read in this church. I mean, even in chapter 1, verse 10, there was division and strife. And it's like, <laughs> so pursue love. Pursue love. And I want to take a journey, and I just want to walk through. And I'd like you, if you would, just to, to go with me on this journey and just look at some passages of love. And we all hear it. And I know sometimes it can be a yawner. Yeah, let's love and get on with it. Well, it's huge. It's huge. And, and so let's actually start... Like, look how um, he ends chapter 12, verse 31. He talks about still more excellent way. And when we describe the supernatural culture of 1 Corinthians 12, it's dynamic. Let me tell you something. It is dynamic. I hope tomorrow, with the help of the Holy Spirit, describe a supernatural culture that flows in the manifestations of the Spirit in a way that would be attractive, certainly not in a, excuse me, in a way that would be sensational, but in a way that would be um, attractive and really would show the work of the spirit and not the works of the flesh. But even after describing that kind of a life, Paul says, but still, I want to show you a more excellent way. I, I want to I show you something that is just, and, and the way you would define that is something that can't even be measured. I mean, if you tried to measure it, this is beyond the capability of measuring. And he's not saying, if you can't have this, then at least you can have that. He is saying, have this, but let it literally be channeled through the pathway of this most excellent way that I'm going to show you. And then he starts in, in this infamous chapter of love. Look at this, chapter 13, verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and the tongues of angels. Incidentally, that's one of the four tongues mentioned in the scriptures. And I have read and read and read and, and tried to find everything I can on what is going on in verse 1. And I know he's talking with superlatives there, you know, trying to show this massive contrast. But tongues of men and tongues of angels, it's being able to literally articulate both in human language and in every celestial language that you could you could possibly do. You imagine something, ladies and gentlemen. Just imagine communication really is what turns cultures. Knowledge is one thing, but the ability to communicate really surpasses that. My undergraduate work was communication. Do you realize communication is fundamental to moving cultures? You think about it for a moment, man. There was one man who was twisted in his mind, twisted in his mind, but he had the ability to communicate, and he led the Nazi Germany into almost conquering the world. That was his mindset. His name was Adolf Hitler. And you know what they said about him? He he was a brilliant communicator. So you imagine the ability to communicate, man. I, I want to communicate. When I went to school, when God called me, I was a heathen. I, when I got saved in 1981, I was a heathen. I mean, I was a heathen. I really was. I, anyway. And, and then God said, now I want you to preach. And I was like, God, that is not happening. But Anyway, he thinks he's God, so he won. And all of this, I said, well, I'm going to take communication because I want to learn how to communicate. Because to me, I would hate 
to be filled with this word but not know how to articulate that. And it's not just about articulation. It's about the anointing. We understand that. But there's just a basic aspect of communicating. And Paul says, man, if I could speak, if I could articulate with all of the tongues of men and even celestial languages, look at this, but not have any love, it's noise. It's noise. It's just this... If I have the gift of prophecy, which is underscored in verse, or chapter 14, and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and look at this, and have all faith, without faith it's impossible to please him, Hebrews, right? Look at this, have all faith, so as to remove mountains, so just go, look at this, and he says, but do not have love, I am nothing, holy smokes, look at that, look at verse 3. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor and I surrender my body to be burned, I'm a martyr for his sake, man. Here's my body, take me. But look, I do that and it's not ushered and motivated by love. It profits me nothing. That's huge. That's some strong stuff there. And then just look at this. Look, Look at this. We've read this, but love is patient. You know, I got to tell you, that one right there always gets me. Because every time I read that, I just think, you know, how's your mind in terms of patience? I'm one of the most impetuous people, and that is like an area. I was at uh, Wendy's. I stopped into Wendy's to get a salad. A salad. (laughs) I was there for 20 minutes. Now, I understand that they had to go out into the garden and cut it and clean it and wash it and bring it in. I understand all of that. You know what I did? I started praising Jesus because I said, you're teaching me how to flow in love. (laughs) And we're not a patient culture, are we? We tap our feet at microwave ovens, don't we? Come on. (laughs) Love is kind. Love is not jealous. It does not brag. It is not arrogant. Does not act becoming. That's the N-A-S-B. So it's not rude. There's no, there's no rudeness to love. I remember sitting in a restaurant and watching these believers bow their head and pray and thank God for their meal, but they just tore into this waitress because she didn't get the order the right way. Don't do that. And by the way, just by the way, as I'm thinking about it, I try to limit my by the way squirrel moments to just like one or two, but um, here's a by the way. Don't tip food or service. Tip people. Value people enough to tip them. When I'm treated bad by a waiter or a waitress, I tip them more because they need a blessing. I was in um, Amarillo holding a meeting with the pastor and his wife. This waitress was so mean to us. Sloshed the water, set it down. I mean, she was just mean. And I had just left Hereford, Texas. And when I was leaving Hereford to drive over to Amarillo to hold this meeting, when I was leaving, this dude came out and he said, Brother, bless you. And he had $100 in his hand. $100. I looked like, wow. I stuffed it in my pocket, get in the car, drive to Amarillo. I'm sitting at Amarillo. This waitress is just mean. And God says, you know that $100 you have in your... I said, yeah. God says, give it to her. I said, God, I have some 20s in my wallet. (laughs) (laughs) Would that work? (laughs) Anyway, 
I called her over. Her name was Susan. I called her over. I took the $100. I slapped it in her hands. I said, bless you, sweetheart. She started to cry right there. She says, you would not have any idea of the day that I've had. I said, I, I was thinking to myself, yeah, I do have an idea. But <laughs> I've done that all over the country. Because I want to become love. Amen. I want to become love. And I don't want to be rude to people. I don't want to treat people the way you treat me. I want to treat people the way Christ would treat them. So I don't alter my response to people based on their response to me. It doesn't work that way. Amen. I respond to people the way he. Okay. Come on. Come on. Um, it's not provoked. So, so it doesn't get angry very easy. Um, it does not take into an account a wrong suffered. We heard about that. There's no record to it. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, rejoices in truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and it never fails. It never fails. It never fails. And I realize that in the execution of manifestations of the Spirit, we'll probably get that wrong from time to time, but love never fails. So if it's executed in agape love, then that has the lasting capacity to bring about transformation. I realized when I was in Sarasota holding a meeting one time, the greatest impartation that I can give away is agape love. People, that, they're not going to remember necessarily um, what was said. They'll remember how they were treated. That's right. They'll remember someone standing there looking them in the eye paying attention to them, valuing them. And I want to tell you something. The most valuable person who ever stands before you is the person who stands before you. And so learn to value people because love never fails. So let's just walk through a few other passages, okay? Um, let's, let's look at, just briefly, only because Craig had mentioned um, this, but in Matthew 22... You, you do know why Jesus was asked the question, what is the greatest commandment? 22, look at 22. And I'll just mention this one just briefly. But in, in 22, uh, 35, the question was asked to Jesus for one simple reason, to test him. And I was reading this little book by William Coleman called The Pharisee's Guide to Total Holiness. And he, I, he mentioned the fact that when Jesus was asked this question, that there were 650 different commandments Jesus could have chosen from. 650, and it didn't start off that way. And he talks about the fact that because of 150 years prior to Jesus ever coming on the scene, the Pharisees' main job was to protect the law. They loved the word. They really did. They were, they were the, like the true Nazarene who loved the word. They really were. 150 years prior, they protected the law. But their love for the word, they loved it so much, they said, we got to create what Coleman defined as a sayog. S-A-Y-A-G, a sayog, which is literally a fence. It's an oral tradition, a law that was passed down to keep you from breaking the law. So they had this fence to protect you. Well, as time went on, it became one fence and another 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 fence. And by the time Jesus arrived on the scene, they had 650 fences. Come on. 
And the problem was, and we learned this in Mark 7, is they had began to put more authority on the fences, the oral traditions, the law, than they did the actual text. And that was the problem. And so the question was asked, which one is he going to say? Is he going to say the one about scuffing? You couldn't spit on the Sabbath. He, he lists some of them, and they're hilarious. You can spit on the Sabbath. Because if your sandal would somehow go over the spit, it could clump it up into a dirt clot, and that's plowing on the Sabbath. Can't do that. <laughs> I know. They're funny. But they weren't to the Jews in first century. And so they're like, what's he going to say? We got him. Right? So here's the deal. He cuts through all of that, and he just says, love. And you know what I learned from that? Until you understand love, you always have fences in your life. You'll always keep people at arm's length. You'll build all of these parameters so you can be safe and you can hide. And you're not going to let the true self be seen. You, you know, you've got to put on a mask and be somebody else and be someone else's voice. And, and you just, it's imitation, man. That's the game, right? But here's the deal. Love makes you vulnerable. Love makes you real. It's transparent. You have nothing to hide. You have no fences. Amen? Okay. Just go with me. Go to John. Go to John, John chapter 13. John chapter 13. And this is remarkable because Jesus, you know, the scene, knowing that all things had been given to him and he had come from God and was going back to God, strips off his outer garment, becomes vulnerable. And what's he do? He begins to wash the disciples' feet. Incidentally, think about that one. He washed the disciples' feet, even Judas. Yes. Yes. See, love, you know this, just isn't loving the people who have the capacity to reciprocate that. Love has the capacity to love people who are going to hurt you. Right. And betray you even. Amen. Now, betrayal and hurt doesn't happen in the ministry, but in other professions it will. Anyway, and so after Jesus gets done with all of this, setting this for a command, as is an example, look what he says in verse 34. Look at this. Look, look what he says, verse 34, 13, 34. A new commandment. A new commandment. Well, what was the old commandment? Well, we learned that in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, but I say unto you, he's now ascribing a new yoke because he's the one who's authorized to do that, Right? And, and so he ascribed, you have heard that it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Now look what he says. I'm giving you a new commandment. That old deal is gone, baby. I'm giving you a new commandment. And here it is. Look at this. I give to you that you love one another. Look at this, even as. And I looked up even as. Guess what it means? It means even as. <laughs> it really does. It's like quality. It's same characteristic, even as. Look at this. Love one another even as I have loved you. You also love one another. And then verse 35, like if verse 34 wasn't enough, look what he says in verse 35. He says this. By this, by what? By love. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. Do you realize the distinguishing characteristic of you being a follower of Jesus is your capacity to love? Yeah. It's really not identified. Well, what about fruit? No, I, I get all that. That's important. But Jesus says, all men will know you are my disciples 
The distinguishing characteristic is by love. Come on. That's good, buddy. That's good. Okay? Just just a couple more. Let's let's go let's go over to um, Galatians. Since we mentioned the fruit, check this out. So in Galatians, verse 22, 522, Galatians 522. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against things, there is no law. It means it can't be legislated. It's not something that can be legislated by law. It's something that has to be driven by character. Now, I was reading a little book by W.T. Perkheiser. He was a uh, scholar, a brilliant mind in the Church of the Nazarene. And, and he and this other, uh, S.D. Gordon, I think, did some study on this verse. And, and so this, this is what he shed uh, light on here. He said, but the fruit, he said, that is a singular noun, karpos, singular noun. And he said, so the fruit of the Spirit, and this is what Perkheiser said, the fruit of the Spirit is love. And he said, that is the fruit of the Spirit. And we've always said there's nine characteristics, but he he argued. He said, based on the grammar of this verse, he said, if you're going to do justice, the fruit would be love. So how do we know if we're really jammed with the Spirit? How do we know if we're walking in the Spirit? How do we know if we're Galatians 5.25 in alignment with the Spirit? What would be the characteristic of that? How would we know? Perkheiser would say, love. It would be love. And then he said, the characteristics that then spill from that, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, he says, are actually fruit of love. So love becomes the fruit of the Spirit, and the other eight characteristics become the fruit of love. And so as you walk in love, then your life begins become a life of joy, becomes a life of peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Because you're walking in the Spirit, and the Spirit enables you to walk in love. This Just turn right to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1. And this comes after a long discourse. And and Paul just kind of just blasts us with this verse. Verse 1. Therefore, look at this. Be, becoming, present tense, becoming imitators of God. I love that word right there, imitators, mimeotes. Remember the old mimeograph? No, you don't. I'm sorry. This is a young church. Never mind. So I grew up where they had mimeograph machines, and it would go in grade school. And the ink was blue, and it had an interesting smell. And we didn't care what was written on it. We just liked to smell the ink. So anyway, it's crazy. Anyway, it was a mimeograph. That was before Xerox. That was before, you know, what we have now. But, but a mimeograph, that word mimites literally means to mimic, to reproduce something in like manner. So everyone in this room is to mimic God. One expositor says we're to mimic God in such a way that when I see you, I see God. Yeah. Well, that would make sense because we're to be godly. Yeah. 
So here's God. No, there's God. No, here's God. No, there's God. No, there's God. No, there's God. Not that you are, but you mimic him. When I look at you, I see God. And I look at that verse and I think that's a little overwhelming. How in the world do I mimic God? Well, verse 2 answers that. Walk in love. <laughs> Walk in love. That's how you mimic God. Because why? First John, what, 4, 8? He is what? How do you mimic him? Walk in love. Look at this. And he goes on, verse 2. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Love is a fragrant aroma. You know what I realized? Any sacrifice I made that's not made in love stinks. I haven't been a pastor as long as Craig, but I've been a pastor to know that there's people that will do things, but they do things with disdain. No one else will do it. I'll do it. You know, don't make the sacrifice. I've learned now that if, you're, if you can't serve in love, just don't do it. We'll come to church with dirty carpet and chairs twisted up and trash. I don't want someone serving who's serving not in agape because it creates a stinky aroma in the atmosphere. Give me people who will serve, walk in love. Because when you serve out of love, when you sacrifice out of love, your life then becomes an aroma and it starts to smell fragrant in the atmosphere. When I'm around you, it's like, my goodness, man, you just smell like Jesus. Because Mark, what, 10, 45, he did not come to serve or uh, be served, but to, yeah. And he gave his life as this fragrant, this fragrant offering. Turn right, turn right. Turn right. Look at Colossians chapter 3. We're just, we're just talking about characteristics of love. Just characteristics of love. I need to speed up here a little bit. Okay, verse 12. 3.12. So as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So check that out. Look at that verse. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. Standing, that literally means to stand up against the challenge that people pose. See, we like to run from people who are difficult. This verse says, bearing with one another. And then goes on, look at this. And forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, you also should, you all, so also should you. Now watch this, verse 14. Beyond all these things. <laughs> Holy smokes. So, you know, compassion and gentleness, humility and bearing and forgiveness, that's all great. But beyond those things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Amen. So, 
one of the dudes that I read is this guy by the name of Rick Renner, and uh, Renner suggested that love, you know, there's different words in the New Testament for love. You guys know that. Well, a couple, actually. But, but in the Greek language, it's very kaleidoscopic. You, you know, we say, I love, you know, I love my wife and I love pizza. And it would probably be best to put it in that order, right? But in the Greek language, it's, it's, it's very descriptive. And so, actually, actually, there's six different words that identify love. And only a couple of them are used in the New Testament. But the one that you use most frequently, and the one that we're talking about, is agape, A-G-P-A. Agape would be the English transliteration. Renner said it's one of the most difficult words to define in the New Testament. And then he defined this, and I read this several years ago, and I remember when I read this, it honestly, it ticked me off. When I first read this, I remember, like, being frustrated. You know why? Because my mind wasn't changed yet. Come on. And when I read it, I realized I needed to repent. I really did. And so is this, this is, so there's two sections to this, okay? Let's just go through this. Here's what he says. Agape occurs when an individual sees, recognizes, understands, or appreciates the value of another person. Boy, that's a statement, isn't it? So now think about this. An individual sees, recognizes, understands, or appreciates the value of another person, causing the viewer to behold this person in great esteem, awe, admiration, wonder, and sincere appreciation. Such great respect is awakened in the heart of the observer for the person that he or she is beholding. Now look at this. They are compelled to love them. Compelled to love them. If, as if to say, I can't help but to love them. That sounds an awful lot like God, John 3.16, who so loved the world. Are you kidding me? Yeah, Romans 5.8, even while we were sinners, what did he do? He exhibited his love, put his love on exhibition by what? Dying for us. You were cursing his name, and he was dying for you. He was compelled to love you. So that's what we see. We love people with that kind of... In fact... His love for that person is so strong, it is irresistible. So we find ourselves just loving people. I can't help it. They treat me mean. They say things about me. They're rude. They're belligerent. They're, 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 just, they're going the way of the devil. I'm done with them. I've tried. I've given everything I can. No, my love for them is so supernatural that it's irresistible. I can't help but to love them. Now, you want a supernatural culture? How about begin with that kind of love because that kind of supernatural Natural love will turn the hearts of many toward Jesus. When you can love people with this irresistible love, when they treat you mean, they treat you with disdain, when you can love people like that, ladies and gentlemen, that is the personification of Christ. It's huge. It's huge. In fact, check this out. Oh, he goes on. Let's just let's go to this. Agape love isn't looking for what it can get. You know, I think about that because, again, I've been in ministry, and everyone wants to be in ministry for something. What about just being in ministry to give something? I tell my church all the time, man, how many more sermons do we need to hear? Really? Come on, man. I hear people say, oh, I can't wait to get there, Sunday and get filled up. Well, what happened? How'd you get empty? Oh, I just want to get there Sunday, man, and just get into the spirit. I never got out of him. 
I don't come to get, man. I come to give. I live my life and want to live my life pursuing a lifestyle of just giving, of just giving and never looking over the shoulder and thinking, well, when is my day coming? My day's coming later when Jesus stands before me and says, well done. That should be enough. Come on, come on. Just to give. Gapi isn't looking for what it can get, but what it can give. It's all of the person who is loved is so deep that it is compelled to shower love upon the person regardless of the response. And then check this out. When you love with this kind of love, it is impossible. Check this out. It is impossible for you to feel hurt or let down by the response of the recipients of your love. And Renner went on to say that it is unoffendable. If you truly agape love, you will not stay in an offense. Now, last night during worship, I'm over here, and I'm saying, Papa, what do you want me to share this week? And I believe he directed me toward this, but he specifically said, I need you to deal with offense. And then Danny stood up last night, and he started talking about that. And I, you know, normally I would think, well, I guess he already spoke about it. And the Lord says, but I gave you that word. <laughs> Layer it. And I'll tell you, as I prayed, I prayed for this church. This is what God said. The insidious nature of the enemy to take this church down will not be through big sins. It'll be through the inroads of the enemy to create an offense within the ranks of the constituency of this body and begin to rip this church from the inside out. It won't be the affairs. Those things are always temptations. It won't be the big things. I believe, I truly believe, Jordan, the Lord said to me, watch out for the schemes of the enemy. And it'll start off as an offense. You know, I had the privilege in my, my doctoral group. I had 18 from around the world. Randy Clark was in my group. One of the persons in my group was Roland Baker. And Roland was a guy that when he would open his mouth, we'd listen. And he would just begin to just download for about an hour on agape love. And here's what he said. Now, check this out. I never forgot this. Baker said, Roland, Roland Baker said, agape love by its very essence implies suffering. Why? Here's what he said. Because agape love will require you to love people who have the don't have the capacity to reciprocate what you are giving them. Therefore, they'll curse the very thing you're giving them, but you're required to love them no less. And there stands the epitome of Jesus looking his accuser in the eye, and he says, forgive them. They don't have a clue. They just, they're out of their head. Father, just let this one go. Let, let, don't even put this one in the books. Let this one go. Come on. I want a supernatural culture. I love the bells, button, and wing, the, 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 the dings, and the shebang of all of that. But I tell you what, gang, that, phew, that stuff to me is nothing more than froth if there isn't agape love in the center of it. It's just, it's hollow, it's superficial, it's almost, it, there's almost a stench. And this is why Paul sandwiched this chapter right in the midst of the manifestations 
It's crucial. It's crucial. Amen. It's crucial. So what does, and I, and I wrote this down. I started to go to bed last night, and this is for you. This is contextual. I, I've never shared this. This is what I believe God said to this church, to those of you who are gathering here. I went to bed, turned the lights out. God got back up, and he said, now I want you to write this down and share this. And so this is how I want to close. Um, God said, it was pressing on me. Rob, share what an environment would look like of biblical love, tangibly, practically. So, so here's our five things that God said, what an environment of biblical love would look like. And number one, it will be a culture of honor. That's right. That's right. You know what honor is? It's, it's deference. Constant deference. If you're in a conversation, defer the conversation to them and let them share. If you're sharing interest, dial yours down and let them excel theirs. See, see what I'm saying? This is very tangible, very practical. It's a culture of honor. We can do honor in the big ways, but honor is small. Honor is stepping aside and letting people in. Honor has the capacity to serve people without being seen. Because we love to serve if we know we're getting noticed. But to serve without anyone noticing it, that's honor. To making people really feel like a prized possession. And you walk away and they're feeling esteemed, but they don't know who esteemed them. That's God. That's honor. A culture of honor. I was reading Philippians chapter 2 and it said, verse 3, With humility of mind, consider others more important than yourself. Whoa, that's honor. Now, it's easy to honor the types that you might respect normally, but this verse does not qualify. There's no disclaimer to this. So this would mean the guy who's sitting along the road beside Starbucks who smells like urine, that man is to be considered more important than yourself. The verse goes on to say in verse 4, Philippians 2.4, do not only consider your own interests, but also the interests of others. I was listening to a man by the name of Dennis Kinlaw explain that verse. He said there's two words missing, only and also. So it doesn't read, do not only consider the interests of others, but also the interests of others. It actually reads, do not consider your interests, but the interests of others. And he said there's never a time you consider your own interests, because Jesus never did. And we're to have his mind, verse 5. Amen. That's honor. Amen. Are you guys with me? It's huge. Number two is what the Lord said. An environment of biblical love will be a place that values truth-telling. Do you know why cultures, churches become plastic? Because we don't value truth-telling. Ephesians 4.15 says, speak the truth in love. Galatians 6.1 talks about confronting those who you, who you see in sin. I was reading the questions that Wesley would ask in his bands and his groups. Are you serious? Like one of the questions was, do, you, do we have permission to share with you whatever we might even fear concerning you? You couldn't even answer, you couldn't answer those questions. You had to answer those questions to even get into a group. I've learned that people want to be held accountable until you hold them accountable. 
But a culture that is love is a culture that will be honest with people. I was backing out of the driveway. I had my daughter-in-law and my wife and my son in the back seat. My daughter-in-law and my wife were on that side. I was backing out of my driveway. We were going to go get some gluten-free pizza. I was all excited. So I was kind of backing out of the driveway with a little bit of muster, right? And in my blind spot, a car was coming down the road. Now, albeit faster than it should have been, but he was driving down the road. And I looked up, and my wife said, watch out, and just barely missed T-boning us. And I just scraped the side of his car down. It would have been disastrous if we got T-boned, but I didn't see him. You know why? He was in my blind spot. Here's what I've learned over the years. I have blind spots, and if people don't point those out in my life, I'm going to hurt people. I put people at risk of being hurt if blind spots in my life, character deficiencies are not pointed out. And I don't like it when people sit down and say, hey, I need to talk to you. When your message on your phone says, hey, I'll call you back, leave a message, and you don't, that's not good. Amen. Amen. That's right. Integrous type issues, things like that to be that that getting into what we call in our church, getting into your grill. That's truth-telling. Love values truth-telling, and it's honest. Now, it's speak the truth in love, not love to speak the truth. Okay. Number three, there will be a righteous regard for each other. Now, hear what I'm saying. I'm not insinuating anything on this one. But I know this is what Papa told me to share and write down for this church and this group here. What do I mean by a righteous regard for each other? It's amazing to me. Craig shared this too. Men value women. Love them enough to look them in the eye. Their bodies are not for you to fondle with your eyes. A culture of love will be a place where a woman is honored and valued as a treasure of God. She's not some piece of an object for you to gratify with your own eyes. Get your eyes off places where they don't belong. Job made a covenant with his eyes not to look lustfully at any woman. And I tell you, women need to be honored with men looking at them in the eye and not their bodies. A righteous regard. That's a culture of love. Ladies... Value men in such a way that you'll never dress provocative or seductive. If you put an outfit on for the sole purpose to look sexy, you're going to have to answer to the Holy Spirit for that. Look modest, look decent, you can look stylish, but if you wear that to accentuate your breast or your hips to attract men, that is wrong. Amen. I don't think I've ever preached this out like this, but I'm just telling you what the Lord told me to write. I'm telling you, a culture of love will have a righteous regard for the people within the body of Christ. Does that make sense, gang? Are you guys with me? I'm talking about love. Number four, it will be a community that remains teachable and correctable. It's fascinating to me in Galatians chapter 2 that Peter actually had a higher like, status in terms of the apostles than Paul But Paul actually stood opposed to Peter and confronted him for his duplicity that he was, the way he was treating Gentiles. And Paul rebukes Peter. And it's obvious later in Peter's life, when you get to the epistles, that Peter had a heart that changed. He had a change of mind. Why? 
because he was teachable. He was correctable. Love will be teachable. And then number five, it will be a place totally free of all offense. There will be no offenses. There'll be no offenses. We won't, we won't get trapped. Dan's exactly right. Scandalizo, the verb of scandalin, means to grab someone and hold them. And so I see people who are trying to get someplace with God, but they can't because they're snagged by something. They're held onto something. And you ask them how they're doing, and they say, well, let me tell you. And they open up their suitcase, and they start in their litany of laundry of what's been going on in their past, and their parents, and their dad, and their husband, their spouse, their kids. And I don't make fun of that stuff, but here's what I want to tell you. When I go to an airport, I get to check my baggage. And I'm telling you, you can check your baggage with God. Come on. You don't have to carry that stuff. You really don't. I realized, I realized last night when Dan was preaching, I'm free. Come on, I'm free. I don't have any offenses. People have said and done things to me. People have left my church in 20 years. And people, people change churches like they do socks. And you pour into people, you invest in people, you help save their marriage, and then they leave because they don't like something. Bless them, love them, don't speak about them in some evil, hateful way. Love them, send them out the door with agape love. Amen. But don't hang on to anything, man, it's not worth it. We can be free. It's agape love. That's right. And that's foundation to a supernatural culture. Can we pray? Come on. Put your hand on your heart, will you? Papa, I want this to be a, an environment that pursues love. I want this to be a place, God, that just chases after love. I love the manifestations, and God, there's a place for that. We'll talk about that. But Jesus... It's superfluous if we're not chasing love, if we're not pursuing love. Papa, would you crucify anything in us that's unlike you right now? Come on, would you? Would you crucify anything that is of selfishness, of anything that is self-centered, anything that is carnal and twisted in our minds? I believe God, listen, I, I say this in love. I believe that there's still people hanging on to stuff. And right now, they can change their mind. Could you, listen, could you just, if, you don't have to say what it is, but could we just, I just, I let it go, Jesus. Could you just tell, I let this go. Come on. Parental stuff, family stuff, issues that happened. I was praying with Justin last night, and Justin said, I actually felt a release that's what he told me last night. He felt a release. You can feel that release when you let go. So Jesus, we let go. Come on, we let go. We let go. We're not carrying this any longer. We will be men and women of agape love. We will walk in love. We will. We will pursue it. God, we will be people in and out of these walls. People of love. In Jesus' name.